Federal Employee Assistance Programs, EAPs, offer employees help with mental health, substance abuse, financial and legal services. Now the Office of Personnel Management is nudging agencies to take their EAPs to a higher level. In new guidance, OPM details how agencies can provide more wellness options, such as fitness classes, health and wellness seminars, suicide prevention, training, and peer support. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got more from OPM's personnel research psychologist, Jorday Taswell. We wanted to recommend a way to rebrand EAPs that were consistent with the government's goal of being a model employer. There are additional services in the areas of health and wellness that are typically not offered or seen in these programs. And we've noticed that some agencies are just kind of being leaders in this area and have adapted new programs that are are creating a more comprehensive approach, which is what OPM is seeking to do with this guidance. We want to look at the mental, emotional, and physical aspects of an employee's health and wellness to really provide them with the most comprehensive arena of supports that are available. And how do you imagine that providing those extra resources is going to help employees in other areas like engagement, satisfaction, productivity? Do you see this kind of work as tying back to broader workforce goals? Absolutely. When it comes to one's productivity and satisfaction at work, it's directly related with your mental and physical wellness. So sometimes there are areas of our life where we need a little bit of personal development as well as professional development. And these employee wellness services can really help an employee to hone in on those areas and provide them with additional support, which can in turn lead to greater productivity and help agency employees meet the mission of their agency. And can you tell me more about what really went into putting together this guidance? What were some of the discussions that you had? Who were you engaging with uh, certain stakeholders or other people that really went into the design or creation of the new guidance? To begin, we hosted a series of targeted focus groups with experts in psychology and health sciences, as well as work life and EAP coordinators across various federal agencies, such as Veterans Affairs, HHS, DHS, and DOL, amongst others. And we had discussions about the weaknesses and areas of improvement for EAP and wellness programs. We also discussed the attitudes employees across agencies tend to have towards EAPs. So if an agency noted that their EAPs tend to be more well-received across employees, we discussed what those agencies may be doing differently in order to determine some best practices. We also spoke with several EAP vendors to assess how these vendors gauge the success of a program as well as to gauge how agencies provide feedback to vendors and then in turn how vendors utilize this feedback. So you just mentioned that you looked at some agencies who have best practices or employees who received these programs well. Can you tell me a little bit more? What were some of the factors at those agencies that really led to employees feeling positively towards the programs that you're hoping to replicate on a larger scale? Well, some of these agencies already kind of had a mission which revolved around health and wellness, for example, NIH. And so uh, at NIH, they are currently offering several programs and resources, um, and they also 
are, you know, trying to create a workplace culture which really values employee wellness and well-being. And in speaking with their work-life coordinators, we were just able to kind of highlight a couple of key components that we could adapt in this guidance to really make it a comprehensive guidance for all federal employees. And another part of the guidance talks about agency leaders and their role in creating the right environment for this type of program. How do you see that role for agency leaders in making sure that employees first know that the program exists in the first place and then encouraging them to actually take part in it? So agency leaders are gifted with a very unique opportunity to inspire inclusive work cultures, which prioritize employee wellness and can really help set the standard for creating and maintaining an environment which normalizes conversations surrounding topics that may have historically had a bit of a negative stigma attached to them, such as mental health and mental health treatment. Our agency leaders can also be key in dispelling false myths associated with wellness services. So we're really recommending that these agency leaders continuously think about the accessibility component of employee wellness resources within their agency to ensure ease of access to and awareness of these tools and supports across the agency. And what are some of the myths that you're hoping agency leaders can help dispel specifically? For one, a lot of people tend to kind of have an outdated understanding of EAPs since they did traditionally originate as substance use treatment services with mental health counseling. However, today they've really grown and evolved to encompass so many more services and resources that sometimes employees are just not aware of these tools that are available at them. Agency leaders can also be key in dispelling myths associated with associated with security clearance, such as, you know, if you utilize a mental health service, that suddenly your security clearance is going to be revoked. And we want agency leaders to, you know, tell their employees that this is simply not the case. There are very, very strict guidelines when it comes to that. If an employee is, you know, potentially a harm to themselves or others. But outside of those very, very small factors, generally, this is never the case. And aside from using agency leaders to help kind of spread the word and encourage employees to take advantage of this when uh, it's needed, what other ways are you and OPM in general looking to make employees more aware that these resources are available? Are there certain methods of communication where you're looking to get in touch with employees more? So we're currently looking to modernize our employee wellness page to facilitate easier and more direct access to various resources and supports for employees in one centralized space. However, we'll definitely follow up on some additional strategies on how we intend to spread awareness on these services and resources. And I wanted to touch on one other part of the guidance that um, I found pretty interesting. It talks a little bit about, um, you know, things like cultural sensitivity and the role of uh, maybe diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, which I know is another uh, big priority for OPM in general. So I was wondering if you could lay out a little bit more specifically, how, how did you think about DEIA and that initiative when you were designing this new guidance on employee wellness? Great question. So this guidance provides criteria for agency leaders um, that kind of center around um, creating reasonable accommodations, using effective communication, uh, physical accessibility and compliance with the Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act. In addition, under the new Cultural Competency Services Act uh, component of EAP services, resources and supports for underserved communities and training areas and cultural and ethnic awareness 
are also addressed, which ties in directly in our goal to foster a culture of inclusion at OPM. So these resources now should also include referrals and access to external resources for transgender, gender nonconforming, and non-binary employees. And are there ways that you're going to be measuring progress or success of the program and any plans to maybe make changes along the way as you see fit? That's a wonderful question. Since employee wellness programs are executed at the agency level, it's ultimately up to each federal agency to measure the success of their program. However, we do provide recommendations for evaluating the success of wellness programs, such as monitoring key performance indicators, which can assist agencies in objectively gauging the effectiveness of these programs. So if there is, for example, an agency who maybe a few months down the road is struggling to kind of, you know, get the word out or encourage employees to take advantage, and maybe they're missing some of those key performance indicators, what is the role of OPM to kind of step in or help that agency? And how, what does that relationship really look like? So OPM's work-life team is always open to providing guidance. Um, if agencies reach out and email us at worklife at OPM, our team is always willing to consult and, you know, speak with agencies about problems that they may be having. But that's something that we'll address as those issues arise, if they arise. The president's management agenda did mention um, a bit about the importance of mental health and employee wellness. Is that something that, you know, this work kind of ties back to the PMA or is there some sort of relationship between the two here? Absolutely. The new employee wellness guidance directly relates to PMA goal 2.3, which notes that agencies will promote awareness of employee well-being and support initiatives that extend beyond the workplace. We provide recommendations for agency leaders on how to overcome major barriers to employee wellness program usage, such as structural or attitudinal barriers to aid agencies in facilitating increased awareness and utilization of wellness resources. And I know that we we may have touched on this a little bit already, but what is the end goal of this new federal employee wellness uh, guidance and the, the kind of updated program? What are you hoping agencies and employees get out of it at the end of the day? Our end goal is to see the integration of a holistic approach to employee well-being, which emphasizes the importance of an employee's physical, mental, and emotional health, and to influence a culture across agencies which remains adaptive and responsive to the needs of the federal workforce. Can you offer anything on a personal note of, you know, why this work is important to you and what you're kind of getting out of the, the process of redesigning or, you know, getting to be very hands-on in in the new guidance here? Since my um, master's degree was in IO psychology with a concentration in diversity and social change, I'm really, you know, pleased to be able to work on a team that, you know, created this employee wellness guidance and have the opportunity to kind of, you know, reflect on some best practices of wellness and an include some of those DEIA initiatives to ensure that there are supports for all employees. Anything else that you wanted to add or anything you feel that you missed in telling me? I think the final takeaway would just be that we encourage our agency leaders to promote these resources on a proactive rather than a reactive basis so that employees can maintain their mental health on a consistent basis. Jordae Taswell, personnel research psychologist at OPM, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. 
they never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbored no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire 
Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.